Good evening, Professor Castells, ladies and gentlemen, students, members of the press, and friends of the LSE. My name is Craig Calhoun, and it is an honor to be here today as director of the LSE, and an honor to welcome all of you to the LSE campus and to introduce this evening's lecture. This lecture is hosted jointly by the London School of Economics, Department of Sociology, and the BBC Radio 4 Analysis Program. This event is the latest in a series of talks which we here at LSE have been pleased to host in partnership with BBC Radio 4 and which are recorded for broadcast. We're delighted to work with Radio 4 on these events and hope the collaboration will continue, but we need to ask your help. Since this is being recorded, may we ask you to please turn your mobile phone off or to flight mode. The Peacock Theater will not necessarily take off, even though this will be an elevating experience, but we need you not to interfere with the broadcast. We may need to do some retakes at the end of the event, so please stay seated until it's confirmed that we have finished recording. This event will, as I said, be broadcast on BBC Radio 4, and the broadcast is scheduled for 8.30 p.m. on the 15th of October and 9.30 on October 21st as part of the analysis program. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Manuel Castells back to the LSE. He has spoken here on several occasions. On this occasion, he has instructed me to be brief and to cite only one of his jobs and only one of his many, many honors and distinctions. I will follow his instructions. Manuel is University Professor and the Wallace Annenberg Chair, Professor of Communications and Technology at the Annenberg School of Communication in the University of Southern California. He is also the 2012 winner of the Holberg Prize, perhaps the highest honor in the social sciences and humanities. Paul Mason, who will interview Manuel, is no stranger to the LSE either, having spoken here on several occasions. He is the economics editor of BBC Two's Newsnight program. His books are also numerous, include Meltdown, The End of the Age of Greed, related to the current discussion, and let me cite Manuel Castell's new volume, Aftermath, just out, which addresses these conditions as well. Part of the event this evening will be the chance for you to put your questions to Manuel, but now will you please join me in welcoming Manuel Castells and Paul Mason, who will discuss The Crisis Always Rings Twice. Manuel. Good evening and welcome to the London School of Economics. I'm Paul Mason and tonight in front of a huge audience, about 800 people here, very young people as well, I'll be speaking to Professor Manuel Castells. Professor Castells is the world's most cited academic in the field of communications. He's one of the most cited sociologists in the world, and it's easy to see why. He is University Professor and Wallace Annenberg Chair in Communication, Technology and Society at the University of Southern California. When most of us were still struggling to connect our modems in the 1990s, Professor Castells was documenting the rise of the network society. When the sociology of protest was still dominated by political parties, trade unions and men, Castells was theorizing what he calls the power of identity, studying the interaction between internet use, counterculture, urban protest movements and 
the self. When these two phenomena, protest and the network, came together in mass social movements during the Arab Spring and with the Occupy movements, Castells was already on the case. In fact, the professor, in his own small way, he tells us in his book, was part of it. In his latest book, Aftermath, The Cultures of the Economic Crisis, which is edited and co-authored with a team of academics, the professor shows us a picture of an economic crisis that has produced a social crisis. He suggests we may be about to see the emergence of a new kind of capitalism with business models growing out of the countercultures of the last 20 years becoming much more mainstream. Becoming much more mainstream. Ladies and gentlemen, Manuel Castells. Thank you very much. Professor, Cast Professor Castells, basic, simple question, 101, what caused the financial crisis we're in the middle of? A combination of uh, new technologies um, that allowed the creation of new financial instruments that did not exist before, with a process of deregulation and uh, institutional factor, therefore, uh, and the recklessness of financial managers. Let's get these elements in order. You are one of the theorists of a, a new kind of you're one of the theorists of a new kind of individualism. What role did the individualism play in the rise of this technological miracle and then its collapse? Well, in fact, there, there are two processes which are different. Uh, the process of individuation, meaning we start from constructing uh, identity and project from ourselves, each one of us. Uh, it's a cultural change that permeates our society and is rooted in the social structure, in fact. Now, individuation is not like individualism. because Individuation, it, okay. What it, is it? Well, actually, uh, Tony Giddens created the concept. Uh, individuation is the fact that we uh, see the world from the perspective of who we are and then we build our lives on our projects. Now, individualism is when the project is to maximize benefit for myself, which is a different thing. Uh, while individuation means that my form of being individual may be collective, like joining with others to change the world or to protect the environment. But let's be really clear about this, because for those of us who have lived through it, it was a massive sociological change, because before individuation, as you describe it, what did we have? We have a society constructed around institutions, around organizations, uh, around uh, sets of institutionalized values uh, in, in the political sense, the political parties, trade unions, government, institutions. And the individuals, as individuals, they have to either conform or withdraw. With the rise of networks, we could all link to each other, uh, networking around our projects, and therefore we became autonomous subjects in every aspect. So this autonomous subject, whether they're the Wall Street, Wall Street trader or the Occupy protester, uh, and I think we might have both in the audience, uh, they are freer within modern capitalism than the capitalism of institutions, hierarchies, set business models. Exactly. Now why does that create the crisis? Because in a condition of greater freedom, if the freedom is appropriated, 
in the sight of power by a few individuals and the corporations attached to these individuals and the rest of society has no say in these institutions, then the networking is in fact concentrated in certain nodes and rather than having the distribution of power, you have a concentration of power. So we've got a network in which the nodes, and those who are not familiar with network theory, node is where bits of the network cluster together. Exactly. The nodes can be owned, as it were, by an elite. They are occupied by an elite. Uh, the, the notion of Occupy Wall Street to some extent is misleading because Wall Street is already occupied uh, by the, the elite that controls Wall Street and uses our money. We'll come to some of this later, but I want to stay on the crisis and the arc of crisis we're travelling through. In your book, Aftermath, you speak, uh, in the first uh, article, the one you yourself has, have co-authored, you speak of the emergence of a kind of four-layer economy post-crisis. So it's with a weakened public sector, a highly concentrated, successful private sector in the high-tech and financial uh, arenas, what you describe as the, the survival models of traditional businesses, and then at the bottom this fascinating new layer of post-capitalist alternative economic activities. Just tell us, how long can that survive? Well, it's expanding, as a matter of fact. What I refer to is not an idea, it's not a proposal is about the observation of one of my latest studies uh, on people who have decided not to wait for the revolution to start living differently. Uh, meaning uh, the expansion of what I call uh, in a technical term non-capitalist practices, meaning they are economic practices, but they don't have a for-profit uh, motivation, such as uh, barter networks, uh, such as uh, social currencies, uh, cooperatives, uh, self-management, uh, agricultural networks, um, helping each other simply in terms of wanting to be together, uh, networks of um, pr pr providing services for free to others in the expectation that someone also will provide to but you. All this exists and it is expanding throughout the world. That's expanding. It's a, it's a kind of fourth sector. Uh, Let's look, at the, at it, let, let's look at what it's doing, because we'll talk in a minute about the, the, the research you've done on what's happening in Catalonia. But just let's stay on the whole, on the whole economic system, the other, including the public, the private, the beleaguered traditional sector. Where do you think that is currently going? Because it's not in stasis, it's, it's in crisis. So where is it going? You see, the, the issue, when, when I mention this alternative uh, economic culture, it's a combination of two things. A number of people have been doing this for quite a while already uh, because they don't agree with the meaninglessness of their lives. But now there is something else. is the legion of consumers who cannot consume. Uh, and therefore, since they do not consume, they don't have the money, they don't have the credit, they don't have anything, then they try at least to make sense of their lives doing something different. So it's at the same time the... the because of needs and because of values. The two things together, that way it's expanding. And this has been in the third world for a long time, but it's different. It was survival waiting to be integrated in the system. But this is a massive pull-out from the system. And it's not the same thing than the social movements. It's something different. It's something different, and let's be clear about that. When we see, as I've seen in my work, um, whole blocks of flats in Seville, in Spain, occupied by very poor, 
very poor marginalized people, led by uh, activists from the M15 Occupy movement, that is what you're talking about. It's the expansion of that you think is crucial to the current stage. This is the most visible part. But what is much more interesting for me is the diffusion of this kind of practices in large segments of the population. We have measured that in the case of Barcelona. It's about 25% of the population of Barcelona. But uh, Los Angeles, New York, uh, we are seeing it at the same time. Okay. You write that the current crisis uh, is effectively cultural. You write the economy is, all economies are, culture. Can you just expand that? Everything we do is a function of what we think, we believe, and we accept. This is ideas. This is not a basic instinct. This is culture, meaning uh, if we um, want to work to make money, to consume, is because we believe that by buying a new car or by buying a new television or a bigger flat, uh, we are going to be happier. This is a particular form of culture. Uh, if, on the contrary, we say, what is really important for me? Well, for most people, what is important, statistically speaking, is love. That's the most important thing for people. Uh, but love needs time. You, know? <laughs> you cannot make love running between two things uh, and even less fall in love. That's why one of the most successful businesses in the world now is matching people yeah. through computers because they don't have time to meet. Uh, and then there are serious surprises afterwards. Um, so, uh, so people are reversing, uh, many people are reversing uh, the, the, the notion that what is important in their life cannot be bought in most cases. Uh, but they don't have the choice anymore because they're already trapped in a machine. What happens? When the machine grips, when the machine is not working anymore, people say, well, I'm really stupid. I'm running all the time for nonsense. And in addition, they don't even pay me and they fire me. So the implication of that would be that if we're seeing large numbers of people hit that barrier in Western society, in consumer-based Western capitalism, and they are in increasing numbers, as phoned by you, switching off from that and switching on to something else. How big a change is this? Because, I mean, the collapse of feudalism was if essentially caused by a series of moments like that, a series of, this no longer works, I'm going to change my values. How big is this culture change? Could it, could it be fundamental, lead to fundamental economic change? It, it is fundamental because because it, it, it triggers a crisis of trust in the two big powers of our world, the political system and the financial system. People don't trust where they put their money, and they don't trust those who they delegate in terms of their votes. Uh, all the statistics are there, comparative, uh, and, and it's, it's a dramatic crisis of trust. And if there is no trust, there is no society. It's simply institutions that still try to control citizens. But the main thing is the, the acceptance in their minds because nothing else is possible. So what we're not going to see is an economic collapse that per se. Because societies are, cannot work in a social vacuum. If the economic institutions don't work, if the financial institutions don't work, the powers the power relationship that exists in society change 
the financial system in ways favor to the financial system. And it doesn't collapse. People collapse, not the financial system. Uh, so you see, the, the issue then is, then people realize two things. First, this financial system was built on completely um, and, 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 um, unreliable mathematical models, in fact, uh, with the implication that we don't count there. Second, when we use the institutions that we have to control the financial system, to change it, to re-equilibrate it, the notion is the banks are going to be all right, we are not going to be all right. We, the bank they did the crisis, but I'm simply reproducing we, the description. We save the banks, we, we, we let people fall. The, the, well, not only that, the we is, if I say the we as people and not as government, uh, what I say, people say, we give the money to the bank. The banks um, mismanage our money. And then our politicians go and save the banks and let us down. So, therefore, there is a big cultural change, a big one. Total distrust in the institutions of finance and politics. So that's the first part. Then from there, two things happen. Some people start already living differently as they can. Some because they want some because they propose alternative ways of life, others because they don't have any other chance. And it's the combination, as always in history, of a cultural innovation by some cultural innovators with those who try this particular solution because they don't have anything. That combination is what may create a process of social change or a process of social rejection and extremism trying to go back rather than go forward. Okay. And what about the elite in all this? I mean, you, you write about uh, the crisis as, a, as, as, a, as a, a crisis of a power system. And in the book, you cite um, articles which, which are by other academics, which effectively say this is a debacle. It's, it's a catastrophe of elite rule, that the elites lost the ability to actually run its own system. Why? Well... In fact, it is a catastrophe for the system and for the reproduction of the financial system, but not for them. They are doing very well. Uh, and, and, and they got out of the crisis with great bonuses, great rewards, and with the great consciousness that the world needed them. Look, concrete example. Why this good guy, Obama, elected with the hope that he, he could change things, and he actually wanted to, um, suddenly finds this financial debacle, has to fix it, what happened? This, this is literally, this I, I know as a fact. He had to find people who know how this system works in order to fix it. These people are Wall Street people who are populating his cabinet. And therefore, the same people who created the crisis, not them, but their friends, their connections, etc., are put in charge of, of fixing the crisis. Are going to fix the crisis thinking first about Wall Street or think, thinking first about the society but they haven't fixed the crisis, have they? Well, for the banks, yes. That's the point. For the banks, yes. But they have fixed the crisis in a way in which it's very easy that it will be reproduced again and again because they have shifted the, the, what was a financial crisis has become a fiscal crisis. They have shifted the crisis toward the government. Why the government is in debt? Because the government had to save the banks. And at the same time, would not tax the rich or the companies because of the power relationships. And the same thing in Europe. Uh, so to some extent, when I say uh, the title that we, we gave to this uh, uh, lecture and conversation, um, 
the, uh, the crisis rings always rings twice. It means exactly that, that if the crisis is fixed only in terms of the short-term interest of those who control finance and power, then the systemic causes are there, but much more, people are already warned that this is not going to work, so they start disengaging and counteracting the crisis. So it's a deeper crisis. You're listening to Analysis with me, Paul Mason, at the London School of Economics with Professor Manuel Castells, the sociologist who first spotted the rise of the networked society. Now, Professor Castells, um, those of us who study uh, these phenomena, the combined phenomena, those of, us, those of us who've studied the crisis and the protest movements it's engendered, some of us, like me as journalists, from behind the gas mask in Syntagma Square, are always fascinated by the fact that many of the phrases we use to describe current reality pop up in your work 15 years ago. So I'm going to go through some of them, um, some of the key ideas associated with your work. Let's go through some of the key ideas associated with your work. Let's start with the network society. What does it mean? Why is it different from the previous society? It's a society where the main activities in which people are engaged are organized fundamentally uh, in networks rather than in vertical organizations. Um, the difference vis-a-vis -vis networks is an old social structure. Uh, the difference is very simple, network technologies. Uh, it's not the same thing to be constantly interactive at the speed of light that just simply have a network of friends and people. So all networks exist, but the connection between everything and everything, be it financial markets, politics, culture, media, uh, communication, etc., that new because of the new digital technology. So the disintegrative power of the technology comes from basically applying the network as a dynamic to much more than, than it was formerly prevalent in. So it's media, so it's academia. Exactly. Yeah, right, okay. So we live in a network society. Could, could we reverse out of a network society? Could we go to the Keynesian world I grew up in, that you grew up in, where a milkman delivered you know, milk to your doorstep and where no, you, you drank in the same pub that your grandfather drank in? Can we ever go back to that? Can, can, can we reverse to a pre-electricity world? Uh, it's as simple as that. No, we can, right? It's a one-way struggle. Although, although many people now uh, are saying, well, why we don't start all over again? It's a huge movement called the degrowth movement, saying we, not, we don't have to grow, we have to degrow. We have to, now, I'm not saying I, I, I support or anything, I'm not normative in this. I'm just, some people uh, would try to go to different forms of communal organization, etc. However, the interesting thing is for the people to organize and, and debate and mobilize for degrowth, and communalism, they have to use the internet. Of course. <laughs> and therefore. But look, the implication of that then, if you think it's as fundamental as ele electricity, then the implication... More fundamental. If even because more fundamental. Information and communication is the essence of the human experience. Now, information is the basis of commerce. The network is the, is the mode of, of communication. You've used the term mass self-communication. So presumably we can never go back to a world where Rupert Murdoch or Richard Desmond, another one of our uh, press barons, dictate what people read in the morning. Although they would tr still try. They try, and we'll come to that. Okay. And, of course, they have a right to try. That is their business model. Well, um, you are in an unfortunate world. You are in the BBC, but that's the, the endangered species of this planet because yes. every, every other medium is completely controlled by some nasty tycoon 
and their censors. I can, I, I can, I can tell you. I can tell you the BBC has censors. And it, oh, really? And, and that it's not, and that it's not a network. It is, in its own way, a hierarchy. Um, the fact that you can say this on BBC means that there are no censors. Okay. <laughs> no, you say, you, you say. In addition, okay, so we know what the network society is. You also write that our societies are increasingly structured around the bipolar opposition of the net and the self. And this is very interesting. It makes you more than just a theorist of society. This new way of living is doing something to our minds. What is it? The more you, we are connected to everything and everybody and every activity, the more we need to know who we are. Um, I refer, for instance, I have great admiration for a good friend, Antonio Damasio, who is probably one of the great neuroscientists in the world. His last book, uh, Self Comes to Mind, shows empirically and, and theoretically that in our brain uh, becomes conscious by identifying the self of the brain. Because the brain is not generic. It has to be my brain. It has to work for me. And, and the brain needs a number of, of data to, to, to process for this individual, not another individual. It's not a collective brain. It's an individual brain. Well, I, I, I more or less say the same for culture. Uh, unless I know who I am, that's where identity comes. I don't know where, where I am in the world. Because then, then I'm a consumer, I'm taken by the market, I'm taken by the media... And that's what some of the critical social sciences have been saying sometimes. There are all these powers that control everything. Uh, you are a consumer. You are under the tyranny of uh, mass consumption and the television. Well, fortunately, humans, we are reckless. And humans, we resist everything. There is one, one basic law in, in humankind. is that wherever is domination, there is resistance to domination. That's the number one law. And therefore, people decide that they are going to be different, uh, and, but f to do that, they have to identify themselves as individuals, as collectives, as nations, as genders, are all these categories that sociologists have already constructed time ago. You're banging your mic a bit, so avoid banging your mic when you speak to me, if you can. Okay. Uh, right. I don't need a mic, actually. Look. <laughs> no, but I need to record. We do for radio. Uh, no, I mean... So, for example, you wrote, I think in the mid-1990s, I'll, I'll praise it, the more somebody has a personal project of autonomy and of individuality, the more they tend to use the internet. And vice versa, the more internet use they do, the more their tendencies towards, as it were, self-expression and autonomy are, are ex exaggerated. Now, it's 15 years on, and we've had Facebook, and we've had Twitter, and Tumblr, and everything. What, how, how's that changed? Well, first, what I wrote there was not my imagination, was the result of an empirical research in a sample of the population, uh, because I have this mania of looking at data always. Um, but uh, with, with the Facebook and with, uh, well, remember, we reached one billion users of Facebook, uh, with all these social networks, what happened is that what used to be um, the construction of... Uh, identity by individuals and then going to use the network, now is absolutely generalized. We live constantly network, but not only in Facebook. 
in other words, we are not virtual subjects. Uh, my, my, my term is that uh, we live in a culture of not virtual reality, but real virtuality. Our reality, real virtuality. Say again, real virtuality. Virtuality, because our virtuality, meaning the internet networks, the images, are a fundamental part of our reality. We cannot live outside this construction of ourselves in the networks of communication. This is very gratifying to me. So what it means is it's my human right to sit on the sofa at home with members of my family and to text one person, tweet another, um, Facebook with another, and when those members of my family complain that I'm being antisocial, I can say to them, well, I, in fact, this is, this is irreversible, I'm afraid. Get used to it. Yeah? Not only is it irreversible, but in fact, you are more social. Uh, all the studies in, in, on the Internet show that... Um, face-to-face -face sociability and, and network internet sociability accumulate. That is, people who are more social in the internet are also more social in face-to-face. -face. But what it means for individuals is that our, our individuality is becoming fragmented then. Because as much as you say, yes, I'm, I'm being more social, I think the activists use the word hyper-social. Okay, it still means uh, you know, those members of my family who object are getting less of me, aren't they? They're getting less. They're getting a fragmentary individual, a distracted, uh, a labile personality. But they, your family are individuals too, and they are very happy not to be all the time with you. And, <laughs> and actually, they are also fragmented, but these fragments are um, autonomous, are decided by the people. The individuals reorganize their lives according to what I call their projects meaning be a political project, a personal project, a project for tonight, but they are them and their projects and connecting to those that they select. Now we'll come to what that has meant for protest and opposition movements in a minute because, of, as you know, it creates a new dynamic and not always a strong dynamic of protest. But let me take you back to the research you did in Catalonia recently for the book Aftermath, Cultures of the Economic Crisis. I was staggered. And this is on the basis, I was staggered, and this is on the basis of quite a large quantitative study, a sociological survey. 97% of the people you survey, surveyed have engaged in what you call non-capitalist economic activity. Sam. Yeah, yeah. What? What is it? Well, it's a combination of people who started years ago. We, we, the country, it's about 30,000, 40,000 people are engaged quite fully in alternative forms of life. 30 or 40,000 people. Yeah, and, but then, but the, the, this is a rep, uh, the study is a representative sample of a population of one and a half million yeah. people. So, but I, I differentiate between people who consciously organize their life around alternative values with people who don't, uh, who live normal lives, but at the same time, they look for, in many, many aspects, to live differently. For instance, um, one third during the crisis, one third of the Barcelona families have lent money without interest to people who were not in their family. One third of Barcelona families lent money without interest to somebody who they know but they're not family. Okay, exactly. stop a minute. Right, we're at the LSE. We too are in a post-crisis situation. Uh, many of you are not the richest people in the world. Can you put your hand up if you've lent money to a non-family member on a no-interest basis? No, I have quite stunned that. We are on radio, but uh, uh, it would be What impressive. do you think? You're the sociologist. What's the, how many is, what proportion is that? You're um, the scientist. 
20%. 20%. That's, that's, your, yours was 30-something percent, so that's still not, not far off. And do you find that staggering? Uh, I, well, I was surprised, I must say. Uh, but another thing that is a question that, that people have uh, asked many times. People who, if they could, they would be ready to work less, being paid less. 57% in the case of, of okay, Barcelona. Okay, let's try it here at the LSE. How many? If you could work less and be paid less, how many of you would do it? Mm, you're not, oh, no, you are. There's a few alternatives here. Good. I think that's about 10, 15%. Okay. Let me, now let, I've got the book here open in well, front the, of the me. Probably let, some people don't work Let anyway. me pick a few others out. <laughs> We're not going to victimize students. Let me... Um, I was talking about the professors. <laughs> <laughs> Have you raised chickens, rabbits, or other animals for self-consumption? And the proportion was very low, somehow, yeah, very low in Catalonia yeah, as well. Um, have, repair, have taken care... Have, have you taken care of children, elderly people, or sick people without the mediation of money? This is beyond your family. Yes, a lot, actually. A lot. I'd say again, about 10-15%. So we have this post-capitalist or non-capitalist, as you call it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's only going back to... Look, in Spain, people would say that this is the family values of a, of a Catholic society. In Britain, we have oh, a... Catholic society, no more. No. No, 10% people attend Mass on Sunday. Okay, but, but still 30% are, are doing these highly social and non they're non-commercial interaction. So the old Karl Marx thing, uh, society is reduced to a, a naked cash nexus, is being disintegrated by the Absolutely, crisis. Absolutely, because Marx never understood about values. Okay. <laughs> right. Not about women either. <laughs> right. Okay, so we come, to the, we come to the crunch here then. Because... You will know, Malcolm Gladwell, the, 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 the theorist, is not the only person to have said this. Look, you've got these highly diverse groups, they pick and choose, they, do, they protest against subject A today, subject B tomorrow, they live lifestyle C at the same time, and then at night they're on World of Warcraft. Okay, they can, they can achieve a lot, but they couldn't have achieved what Martin Luther King achieved. They couldn't have achieved what Castro and Guevara achieved. That's, that's right, isn't it? We're in a different, we're in a different ball game. You only achieve in terms of social change when you change the minds of the people. That's the critical thing. Uh, it, that's, the, that's the strength, that's the force. Because if people think differently, pure repression, that's not to stop them. Uh, you know, we know about all the Arab revolution, etc. Massacres, killings. Etc. And I'm not saying that then the outcome is necessarily good or positive. That would be normative. But they didn't stop. Uh, they didn't stop. And the same thing that we are seeing today, for instance, when people talk about uh, the movements that don't change, they don't change because the political system is blocked. The political system in is, is an autistic state. They would rather not listen, not see citizens, and keep them as pure consumers in terms of voting the day they are called to vote on a number of recipes, basically two recipes, uh, cold for our, uh, cold warm or warm cold. But 
It's very small differences in the fundamental ways of life. A lot of difference in social policies, economic policies, etc. But very small difference in the rest. So, uh, therefore, the impact on the political institutions is almost negligible because the political institutions are impervious to change. But if you look at what's happening in terms of the consciousness of what is being raised, at this point in the majority of countries, you have people who are more supporters of these critics than against this critic. And then you have things like the huge debate of social inequality that, that didn't exist three years ago in the United States. Uh, there we have solid data in the United States about uh, 20 years ago, people who thought that uh, was a class conflict, say conflict between rich and poor, were about 40%. Mm. Now 70% of but, Americans but Professor think Kaskals. that the, the, the conflict between rich and poor is important. But Germany, Germany, let me just, this let me week. Just, let me just interject. The problem like is, Germany. what do they achieve? <laughs> the problem is, what do they achieve? In the sense that you know, the Occupy movement, you speak there, they speak of the 99%. What they're, at the end of uh, this year, if, 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 if it goes the way uh, we expect, the, they will achieve putting President Obama back into power, a man who has done more drone attacks on Afghanistan than, than I think the people on the Occupy streets would have liked him to do. Let's put it that way. So they don't achieve anything that actually alters what those in power are actually doing. And so I bring you back to, you know, Mandela did, Martin Luther King did. These were hierarchical movements with a goal, a program, and a leadership. Why do we worship the spontaneity of the network protest? Because people don't trust leaders anymore, not even their own leaders, because they had felt uh, exactly, as you said, uh, many of the people in the Occupy Wall Street came from the Obama campaign. And, and they are voting Obama, but they are not completely irrational. They, 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 they do whatever they can by themselves, and then rather than have uh, whoever they, they could have instead of Obama, uh, this Romney billionaire, uh, they will still vote, and they will still vote for Obama. But they know that this is for the long term. And why the long term? Because it is a long process from the minds of the people to the institutions of society. Let's take a historical example, of which, because these long processes have a historical horizon. Um, toward the end of the 19th century in Europe, um, there were basically simplifying things the conservatives and the liberals, um, and right and left, okay. Uh, but then something happened, industrialization, working class movement, uh, new ideologies, a new movement started. All this was not in the political system, was not. Uh, it took 20 to 30 years to then you have the socialists and then the, the, the split from the socialists. You have a complete, and the liberals disappear, basically. Are you saying to me then that we're going to see a transformation similar to that, as big as that, as to the, the eruption of organized labor into politics. We're now seeing the eruption of disorganized consumers and cultural practitioners into, a, into politics, and eventually it will change politics. It will change politics, but not through organized forms of politics in the same way. Why? Because networks are different, and networks don't need hierarchical organizations. They don't need it, but hierarchical organizations carry on. I mean, the Bilderberg group this year, I'm told, uh, the word panic was used for the first time. They were, they were admitted to be in panic over Merkel and Sarkozy. But, you know, still, they exist, 
And still the yachts on, line up outside various Mediterranean ports and the rich get off them and in the restaurants they decide more or less what's going to happen in the world. The, these people on the streets are completely marginalised from that. And don't you see the, 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 the problem of that marginalisation? Definitely, but what I'm trying to argue is that the moment systems can only evolve uh, peacefully, when they internalise within the institutions the pressures that happen in society, when the systems block and they do not internalise the social critiques, the new values, etc., then the institutions are eroded. Not a revolution happens in, in the context, in, in the traditional central revolution, violent, etc., but what happens is the formation of new public opinion, the new political expressions. And that's why, in democracies, all this ultimately will translate, not necessarily in new political parties, but in new voting patterns, okay. which is a different thing. Uh, at a very small level, yet, 12% uh, of the vote for the Pirate Party in Germany? Is that interesting? Well, it's interesting. In Germany, of all places... Uh, we saw, we saw quite a hierarchical leftist movement in Greece, That's Syriza, get 27%. But I want to quote you something you've written in the, in the recent book. Social protests are mounting, populist movements have erupted onto the political scene, and the culture of defensive individualism, and the culture of defensive individualism fuels xenophobia, racism, and widespread hostility, breaking down the social fabric and increasing the distance between government and citizens. And surely that's the nightmare, isn't it, for you, that, that what happens is not the rise of a, of a utopia based on the Occupy movement and the indignados, but that the fascists in Greece, the far right, the Islamists in North Africa are the ones who reap the benefits, and this beautiful movement of nice people is just sidelined. No, it's both at the same time. Look, what, what is, what is uh, happening everywhere is the gradual disintegration of the ability of the political and social institutions to absorb the interest and the capacity of pressure from citizens. That's what's happening. But that takes many different forms, and some of them very dangerous. And therefore, that's why one has to be analytical and non-normative, saying it's good or it's bad. One has to say that the disintegration of the political system, as it is, is underway. And the consequences of this depend on many different factors, both from utopian movements, a, re a renewal of traditional uh, public sector unions, but also all these extreme rightist populist movements, which are very important, not only in poor Greece, but in rich Finland. I'm just thinking, because we, we can only begin from historical parallels. If we think about what happened in Europe in the early 1930s, during the rise of fascism, you got a very... You've got a moment where I think the intelligentsia and probably the liberals and the left uh, suddenly realised that there was a thing there that was not coming out of the roaring 20s and the, and the generation of James Joyce. It was coming from somewhere else. Nazism, phalangism, fascism. Exactly. And they suddenly realised they couldn't stop it. Don't you worry above all in Egypt, which you've studied in your other books and written about, that, that you do see in Egypt and Tunisia the rise of Islamism and not just the Muslim Brotherhood, the Salafist movement, the more extreme Islam. Don't you worry that they are going to have to hit some kind of moment like that and it'll be a big wake-up call for the secularists and the liberals and the left? You see, the point is that uh, you want to talk about the, the Muslim world and you know it quite well. Uh, the, every free election in Muslim countries in the last 20 years has been won by Islamic parties. Yeah. Okay? So democracy in the Muslim countries means 
Islamic domination of democracy, as the Christian Democrats dominated uh, Europe in the post-war war. So uh, the notion that because they are Muslims and they use the religion in politics, by definition, they are barbarians that we have to exterminate, we already tried that. Uh, we already tried that. Uh, and that the, the, the result of this has been Al-Qaeda and the rise of Salafism. So the most, the most important defense against Salafism for the time being in Egypt is the Muslim Brotherhood. Precisely because it's the at least channeled population. Besides, and but the movement, the movement, as you know, is not, it's neither one. The movement was not uh, no. confessional at all. No. At all. But when you translate into political institutions and when you translate into voting patterns, then the organizations that control the network, the clientele networks, are still Islamic. And the problem you then have for the movement we're talking about, I personally have reported on this, you've written about it, is that you get the, the people who are the networked individuals, who have the networked self, they live on Facebook, Twitter, they're largely secular, not all secular, they're educated. When they even begin to try and operate their network on a small scale, suddenly they're up against something else. That's something else, the same as liberals were up against in the working class districts of Berlin in 1932. That something else is strong, hierarchical, and it doesn't do, it doesn't do affinity groups. Okay? Absolutely. What do they do? So what are they supposed to do? First, they have to, to, to do Mubarak, then the Egyptian army, then the Muslim Brotherhood, and then, by the way, male domination, because as you know, uh, Egyptian women are very much in the, in the revolution, and they had been repressed by all the, all the above. Okay? So, but they keep moving, and they and they have their tools, their internet network, their social networks. So what I'm not, not saying that you do a little revolution, three months, and we have perfect Islamic democracy. No, what I'm saying is that these societies uh, are on the move, are changing. And they are changing in ways in which people have the control of their communication power. And because they can communicate with each other, they can organize uh, with each other regardless of the control from the above. And, but this is a huge struggle. Where is it going to end? I don't just mean the, the Egyptian situation, I mean the situation you've written about, the Occupy movement, the Spanish indignados. Where's, I'm not asking you for a 50-year perspective, but where's the crisis going to end? It very much depends on the combination of the crisis of political legitimacy. Look, at this point, the Conservative Party in Spain uh, has less than 30% uh, voting intention, and the socialists, 18%, uh, because they are completely destroyed at so this So could point. they go the way of the Greek political system, which has more or less collapsed? Well, well except that Syriza uh, represents, at this point, more than 30% of the vote. Mm. And I'm not necessarily for Syriza. I'm just saying something that did not exist the before is now the, the number not. one political force. The number it's one quite political a big thing force. for you as a... As a a preeminent Spanish academic to say that the Spanish political system could go the way of the Greek one? Um, not so, because there is not even a nucleus of any party. And the one clear thing in the movement for the long time is that no parties. They will be the same immediately. Uh, the, the communists have been trying to, to mm. use this, but they absolutely discredited. And yes, as I, as I wrote, uh, they, they had a dramatic surge in the parliament they triple uh, the seats from 3 to 11. Uh, so, um, so, I, I, so I repeat the, the question, so where, does it end? where does it end? Not just Spain, but, but 
you know, let's make this the last question before we throw it open. What, what's your best guess about what is, a, what is about to happen in the next phase of the economic and social and cultural crisis we're going through? Mm -hmm. Well, as, as you well know, I never predict anything. But what I... I, I uh, no. You, I, I predict retrospectively, by the way. Uh, no, really. Uh, if you... If, it's much safer. Uh, if you look... It's exactly what you are, you are saying. If you look at what I wrote 15 years ago concerning trends in society without predicting anything, and you use this analysis now, things relatively work uh, more or less along these lines, some of them. Uh, no, but what I'm, what I'm seeing is that the economic crisis is not solved. One of the key issues, the economic crisis in the United States, in Europe, is not solved. Uh, one of the uh, key issues is that um, politicians and, and financial leaders keep saying the crisis is over, don't worry. And it's not over, and not over, and we already are in the fourth year of this uh, endless crisis. So first, the economic crisis is, is, uh, is not resolved. Unemployment grows, social services are cut, and looks like the only solution to the crisis is to destroy the welfare state. Which is, in the United States, this election, Romney's program is explicitly to destroy whatever little welfare state is in America. So it's a big offensive against that. And therefore, the, the, the combination of... of this economic, social, and crisis of political legitimacy could provoke a joint backlash from the welfare state uh, users, from the public sector unions that now they must, must fight for their life, with all the new alternative movements in very confused way with simply individuals and people who want to take control of their life. All this together is not going to be a great electoral coalition, not going to be any new party, any new anything. It's simply society against the state and against the financial institutions. Not against capitalists, by the way. Against financial institutions, which is different. So with all this climate, what happens is that more and more our societies will become ungovernable and therefore we can have all kinds of phenomenon, some of them very dangerous. They can make it ungovernable, but unlike the trade unions or the old social democrats, they'll never be able to say, as Labour said in 1945 in this country, we are the masters now. They'll never. So they can never institute a social programme, as Labour did. It just happens that people don't, will, don't want masters. They don't want masters. And that's, that, at the same time, is very complicated, but it's very interesting, right? Absolutely. That for the first time... Uh, people are saying no masters, uh, and, and, but that's really the vanguard of the movement. Most of other people want to survive. 52% uh, unemployment rate, uh, youth unemployment rate in Spain. Well, mm. people first need some job. You, you offer any job, they, they, they take it for the moment. And then they try to work less and be paid less, but first a job. <laughs> I think I'll throw it open to the, to the floor there. Actually, thank you, uh, Professor Castells. Uh, right, I can see hands going up already. I've been told that there are, there are Occupy people with helmets here who might show me them, uh, just in case I don't know who they are. That's you, I know. Um, let's hear uh, from a uh, person in the pink shirt there, you. Wait a minute. You, because it's radio, we actually need mics. Just bear with us. And I have to hear you. Hello. Um, do, you, do you say who you are? Uh, my name's... Richard Payson, I'm from the Occupy movement. Oh. Hello. Um, you spoke a lot about uh, communication and consciousness changing, um, but don't you think that communication on its own can be almost disempowering? Because, um, I mean, what you need if you're in a movement is a tactic and uh, some routes into the population. And on its own, you, your communication and the ability to network, what you end up with is a 
uh, a really widely understood open secret as to how bad it all is, but no ability to change it. Thank you. Uh, well, as you know, it's, it's a big debate there. It's, um, there's no way to do any tactical uh, um, move uh, without, in, without changing the parameters of power. Uh, in terms of demonstrating, not demonstrating, uh, occupying, voting, still the system is much stronger than, than the, the embryos of, of the movement. The only way for the movement to grow uh, is exactly what, in that sense, the American movement was much more conscious, to be the 99%. And how you are the 99% is not organizing neighborhood by neighborhood, although many people do and it's good. Uh, it's really reaching the minds of the people. And you reach the minds of the people through a process of communication. And this process of communication uh, is today, fundamentally, through the Internet, in which most people are connected to the Internet, and debating. But it's not the only thing, by any means. By any means. So, but without transforming the minds of the people, it's impossible to move beyond the current state of uh, minority movement. Professor Castells, what, what I would just say there is that, I mean, that question there, <clears throat> that question there from somebody who's in the Occupy movement is not... It's not uncommon now in this phase to hear people to say, look, we tried consensus, we tried endless doing of hand gestures, and meanwhile, nothing's changed. Uh, aren't you actually, isn't there a little bit of a backlash against the network form of protest there going on? Well, I, I frankly don't see this. What I see on the contrary is that some impatience in, in the movement leading to uh, direct confrontation actions provokes a negative a negative reaction in the population at large. Uh, remember that the police is always ready to provoke because any scene of violence uh, immediately is reported by the media and this delegitimizes any attempt to criticize the system. All becomes chaos, anarchism, etc. So, Okay, right at the back there with the microphone already, please. Can I just say one thing? I should have said questions only, or if you make points, please make them as long as a tweet, no longer. Go. Okay. Uh, right. My question is... Um, Use your name, please. Start again. Uh, Ramesh Shukla is my name. And uh, my question is the austerity in Europe. What is it doing to the sense of, sense of solidarity? I mean, yes, austerity, how is it affecting this, the sense of solidarity uh, to, the Europe, to the Europe? I mean, we already have a weak sense of solidarity in Europe. And, uh, and we will require a sense of, uh, serious sense of solidarity to resolve uh, Europe's problems. So, uh, yes, could you... Uh, sir, what, what, is the, what, is the Europe, what is the austerity doing to the sense of solidarity yes, in yes, Europe? Sir, I got you. Look, um, in the year 2000, there was this famous Lisbon agenda in which Euro Europe tried to launch the, a new process of modernization, research, etc. And I was in the expert group who wrote the Lisbon Agenda. And um, they, they asked me to focus on one particular topic, which was the existence of a European identity and the relationship between the European project and European identity. Well, I showed what we had been discovered many times, that there's no such a thing as European identity in terms of primary identity. Uh, the identity was fundamentally... Um, regional and local, then national, 
then European identity, less than 2% of European citizens would consider it as a primary identity. And by the way, it's totally class bias. The elites feel more European, uh, the, the working class, uh, the grassroots of common people don't feel very European. All right. So what the conclusion of that report that was approved in the Lisbon Agenda was that the, the absence of European identity, of real European identity, uh, would not be an obstacle to, to build European institutions as long as things would be going well. As long as there was no crisis, no need to share resources, uh, no need to uh, take from one country to give it to the other. But as, as soon as would be a crisis, you only share with the people you feel alike. And if you look at the data today between what the Germans think of Greeks and what the Greeks think of Germans, it's, it's almost, if they could start shooting, they would do it immediately. Uh, uh, because there is absolute hatred between certain, uh, the majority of certain societies and others at this point. Uh, because they have the impression, as you know, that the Greeks and the Italians and the Spaniards take the results of hard German work and then they just dilapidate. And, of course, the other countries think that the problem is that uh, all these um, uh, speculative investments, particularly in real estate, were financed by German and French banks. Uh, and therefore, uh, the, Merkel is trying to say the banks, again, the German banks and the French banks, are not the, 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 Why the population. Why doesn't network technology overcome this? Sorry? Why doesn't networking overcome this? Over? Why, doesn't it, why, why, doesn't the, why don't these enmities, uh, why can't these enmities be overcome by social networks and communication? Because social networks uh, reproduce what exists in society, meaning, meaning that uh, these social networks in Greece are to reinforce the sense that they are exploiting us and in Germany that they are robbing us. It's social networks in Germany, social networks in Greece, and only a few interesting uh, idealistic students are trying to connect and create something else. But the population at large uses internet to reinforce their position. Woman at the back there, up there. Is it working? Yeah, name start is, again. Uh, my name is Zhang Hong. I'm a sociology student at LSE. Um, I'm from China, and I feel that today's discussion is pretty much um, Western-centric. So I guess people left this, leave this lecture uh, with the impression that capitalism is on the demise. But what we observe in China is that capitalism is very much on the rise. So I wonder what happens when we are seeing these two contra trends um, in the world. And so w how do you foresee that the world would be like in 30, 30 years, and maybe. Madam, you don't think that uh, a thousand people on strike in Foxconn uh, and people on the streets uh -huh. uh, in, in unauthorized and unannounced uh -huh. and unreported exactly. social protest uh, are, are, are anything like a crisis? Exactly. They are, but they are not, uh, not at the same scale as in, in the West. That is really... No, wait. The, the, the Absolutely. Well, you, you said wait, Professor. Uh, well, I say that... Uh, in, in the aftermath book that we are presenting, uh, there are two big chapters, one on China and one on Latin America. Uh, and we, in fact, we use the term for all this, the non-global global crisis. Uh, because the, the, the crisis in the terms we are living in the United States and, and Europe is not global by no means. Most of the world at this point is growing, not declining. Uh, with, uh, then there are all kinds of 
phenomenon of exploitation, poverty, etc. But on the contrary, the, the, the global economy is growing and China continues to grow and Brazil is exploding and India is continuing to grow with all the inequality you want to, to, to include. So, but the chapter we have in the book on China uh, by one of the uh, greatest China specialists, Professor Yu Tian Singh from Berkeley, uh, argues with data that the real crisis in China is not economic, it's social. And that the, the, the rate of exploitation combined with a, a ferocious dictatorship uh, means that uh, more and more uh, there are social explosions. We have no institutional channels and that China is moving fast, faster than we think, toward a sort of constant social explosions that will destabilize the Chinese society and polity and therefore the global economy because the Chinese society destabilized in political terms, in terms of revolts, then the entire global economy will be in turmoil. How soon till we get a Chinese spring? <laughs> well, uh, let's be careful, because the last time they tried that with the Jasmine Revolution in China, in January 2011, there were more secret police than demonstrators in the, in, in the, in the point of, of, of demonstration. But it's not through the students, frankly speaking. Uh, is through the working class and the peasants being expelled from their land. And, and in that sense, well, they, they remember the, in, in southern China, the, the Sunan revolt, a village revolt, that really, uh, with the internet, by the way, from villagers, obtained the solidarity of the entire region against the expropriation of their land and the support of the outside world and the Chinese community of the outside world. And ultimately, the Chinese government had to remove the, the, the mayor and the police chief and have to give up on the attempt to expoliate the land. So there are a number of, of things, very important things going on in China. Okay, question down here, please. Yeah, Keith Raffin, former member of parliament and a journalist. Start um, again, please, Keith. Uh, Keith Raffin, former member of parliament and journalist. Uh, even before you, George Steiner, 35 years ago, predicted we'd be drowned by an information flood and increasingly incapable of dealing with the speed of change. And isn't it the fact that politics, uh, politicians, political system, democracy, basically just can't keep up? I mean, we have in this country, one example, the Vickers Commission, separating retail investment banking. And in China, look, we had the uh, stimulus there, far more effective because basically dictatorship, shovel-ready projects uh, to, you know, to get the stimulus going. So I think you're being unfair on the politicians, but it's just the system that they can't keep up. Well... They, they can't keep up with information, you're right, but I'm not sure that they are so interested because the issue is that they are not open to citizens' demands. They, they cannot modify the, the, the way of thinking about political institutions. Look, a concrete example, electoral laws. Electoral laws are a shame in most of the world. They do not represent the majority of the electorate. The, the electoral college system in the United States it's absolutely ridiculous. Yes, but it's also ridiculous that in the Greek parliament, over 300 seats, the, the, the party that has one more vote gets 50 seats. That's the only reason there is a, a, a conservative government in Greece now. And there the was only, a the only reason there's a government, Professor. I mean, yeah. that's because that's why it was constructed that way. You know that it would be chaos without it. Well, exactly. A government which, in fact, does not represent a large majority of the uh, Greek population. The same thing in Spain, the Indian movement asked me to propose a, a reform of the electoral law. 
that we did and were discussed in, 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 in many, many grounds. But of course, you think the parliament would even consider the notion of changing some very moderate, very, very moderate changes that would have changed, for instance, one thing in the parliament, one thing in the parliament, allow members of parliament to express themselves without the permission of the party, as persons, not party members. So there's so much. My point is that there is the movement, etc., etc. But there is so much to reform internally in the political institutions that this would open up windows and would have fresh air between society and the institutions. And simply, there is not. There is no will. We won't be able to take all the questions. I'm afraid there's lots of it. Woman down here. My name is Leila Laksari. Start again, please. My name is Leila Laksari. I live in Tottenham, in London. And um, for the past 10, 12 years, I've been working with many mothers of our community. I come from Iran, and many of the mothers come from different parts of the world, and they've learned to tell their stories. And the story is about talking about different types of network society. It's about not being victims and being proactive. My question is, do you believe in community leadership because we are exploring the whole ideas of telling our story and creating new identities, redefining families, because many of our communities have been deprived of major services. They are challenging the concept of hard-to-reach communities and talking about hard-to-reach services. And I just want to say that I do believe there is a huge conversation happening, and it does take time. Uh, even for capitalists. So for communities, we need to give it a better time for these conversations so do, to take so place. The question is, do you believe in community leadership? Yeah. It is, after all, a form of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, that's a, actually a very important thing. Um, networks connect and disconnect, okay? Connect the people who are connected, but disconnect from other people who are not connected. Uh, therefore, together with the rise of networks, the phenomenon that, that's why the, the net and the self... Uh, the self is community. The self is people feeling together uh, around something, where you live, your children, uh, your problems. That building of community is the reconstruction of the social fabric of society without which nothing else can happen. So it's both the connection of networks at large and the communities at the local level bypassing in both cases these institutions and formal organizations which are emptied of meaning at this point. Isn't there a danger, Professor, that, that these expanded selves you, you speak of, isn't there a danger that these expanded selves, really what they're doing is reveling in powerlessness? They're quite happy to have le less power. They can't change the political system, but they can feel better about it. Isn't that, doesn't that slightly depress you? Well, they have to exist in some way. Uh, they are not represented. They are not represented in the political power, and they are not represented in the financial power, and they are not very much represented in the media power. So either they, they decided that they face out, and they, there is a society there, but it's not them, or they have to reconstruct. Last question, madam. My name is Evdoxia Limperi. Start again, please. My name is Evdoxia Limperi. I am a Greek journalist, and um, these are very interesting. You mentioned about the 30s crisis in Europe and that, how it fed the far-right movement. And we see the same phenomenon repeating itself now in Greece and other countries in Europe. 
It's not only Syriza, the left party that came stronger from this crisis, it's the far left, left uh, the, the far right party that comes third in the polls, and that's very scary in the moment, okay. and there are many consequences in the uh, society. Can you comment on that, and are, are we facing again the same thing after the 30s, like a, 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 a huge far right uh, rising? And Professor Castells, you know, it wasn't networks and affinity groups that stopped fascism in the countries that it was stopped. I think that is, that is I think, uh, the pointed way of asking that question. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a very important question. Well, first, I don't think that the parallel uh, with the 30s is, is, is total. Uh, but speaking about the current situation, if there is a growing inability of the economic system and of the welfare state institutions to incorporate society's demands, people's needs, etc. Of course, we'll see many expressions of alternative forms of politics uh, which will escape the mainstream traditional political institutions. And some of them, of course, is going back and trying on the contrary to have a nationalistic, primitive community to attack everybody and to ultimately build a commune cut off from the world and oppress their own people. So there, this is happening in the Netherlands, this is happening in, in, in Norway, this is happening in Finland, it's happening in supposedly very respectable northern societies. Um, and it's to some extent happening in Germany too. In Spain it's happening less because they are all in the conservative party, so for the moment they control the government without too much of a problem. Uh, but they, um, what, what happens in any process of disorganized, chaotic social change they are all these phenomena coexisting. And the play out of one against the other uh, will depend ultimately if the political institutions open up enough channels of participation for the energy that exists in society for change could overcome the resistance of the dark forces that exist in all societies. Now, I have to apologize to all those people who I partly recognized and said I was going to maybe take. I can't because we're running out of time. I will just do apologize, but please understand we can only do so much. Um, right, that brings us to the end of this edition of Analysis with Manuel Cast... I'll start again. <laughs> right, that brings us to the end of this edition of Analysis with Manuel Castells. Author I'm just going to do it right <laughs> Right, that brings us to the end of this edition of Analysis with Manuel Castells, author of Aftermath, The Cultures of the Economic Crisis. Thanks to him, thanks to the audience here, very feisty at the London School of Economics. That's all from me, Paul Mason. Good night.